Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening today. I'm recording this from the Aboriginal land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening to us today. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. This podcast episode is supported by the Nestle Nutrition Institute. And today we're going to be taking a look at the OzFITS trial, which is a recent study investigating food and nutrient intake in Australian children aged under two years. And even though we're all very well aware of the importance of early life nutrition, this is the first national survey of its kind in Australia. And to walk us through some of the key findings, my guest today is Dr. Meryn Netting, investigator on the OzFITS trial. Meryn is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian and an NHMRC Early Career Fellow based at the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute and the Adelaide Women's and Children's Hospital. Meryn is an experienced paediatric dietitian with over 30 years of clinical experience. Her research is focused on the long-term effects of early life dietary patterns. So welcome to the podcast, Meryn. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jane. I'm really pleased to be able to talk about the OzFit study. So before we get on to the, the actual study, um, I'm always interested to hear how people come to where they are in their careers at the moment, um, since we're primarily talking to dietitians. So as an accredited practicing dietitian, can you just give us a bit of your background and how you came to be a nutrition researcher? Uh, yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Um, I, I'm a paediatric dietitian. I'm um, been really fortunate um, to be able to always work in paediatrics. Even as a new grad, I got a job um, at a one of our um, uh, big public hospital in the northern suburbs of Adelaide. Um, they didn't have a paediatrics clinic, um, so I was able to start one. And then I got a job uh, working at the Adelaide Children's Hospital then. That was in 1991. And uh, I worked... Um, I've worked there ever since. I uh, worked in um, mostly food allergy um, and inborn errors of metabolism, but had also a really broad experience in general paediatrics, gastroenterology, uh, surge. So all of the the main paediatrics um, things that you would see the subspecialties, and I've always been interested in research and diving a little bit deeper into the care and the evidence behind the way we would uh, treat children. And I was very fortunate um, when my kids were in high school um, to get a PhD um, scholarship and start my PhD, which was in uh, prevention and management of egg allergy. So I did an allergy immunology PhD, um, I ran an RCT looking at the effect of baked egg 
in kids with egg allergy on their immune markers. So I spent a lot of time in the lab and also a fair bit of time in clinic. So I really did a, a bench to or bedside to bench mm. and back again sort of study. And so are you full-time research now or do you still have gets to do some clinical work? Yeah, so I hold a health practitioner fellowship um, from the NHMRC. So I do 0.8 FTE research and I spend a day a week in clinic at the Women's and Children's Hospital. So I still do a general clinic and some allergy work and I run a really small private practice as well. So I've got plenty Plenty going on. Oh, it must be quite a nice balance. Mm, it is, yeah. Um, so let's look at the Ausfitz trial. How did that come about and what makes it so unique? So, um, so worldwide uh, there are a series of studies um, called the Feeding Infants and Toddlers Studies and uh, there's quite, a, you know, the largest one is um, in America but um these are a group of studies that are run by um, Nestle Nutrition Institute. And uh, we got some support to run a FIT study in Australia. Um, so we got some funding in kind, um, but it's also been supported by Adelaide University and uh, the Research Institute where I work, so the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute. And so we've modified the FITS methodology to fit the Australian um, population. And we know that in Australia we haven't really had an abundance of great dietary data across the whole lifespan. It's only been reasonably recently that we've had some sort of updated adult um, dietary intake data. But it's amazing that this is the first nationwide sample in the infants and toddlers. Why hasn't there been anything before now? Yeah, look, it... it um unbelievable really I think because this is such an interesting and important group so the um, Australian um, National Infant Feeding Study um, 2010 you know they collected data on breastfeeding initiation use of breast milk substitutes exclusive breastfeeding and timing of solid foods and the Bureau of Statistics studies keep you know data on breastfeeding initiation timing of solid foods, but nobody, um, including the Australian National Health Survey, nobody have actually um, collected all of that data with complete nutritional intake. Um, the Australian National Health Survey didn't collect any information about children under two. So it's been a huge gap in our knowledge. Uh, so, you know, when we're teaching um, about paediatrics and infant feeding, we, we've been using data collected from America, uh, mm. which, which isn't you know, really applicable to the Australian setting. No. So can you sort of give us the, the main aim of the study? And um, I understand it was a survey. Maybe if you can just give us like a one-liner on the sort of methodology of it. But um, what, what were your main aims? So our main aims were really to get um, to survey under two and it was a national representative study. So we included um, people from every state and territory in Australia and we weighted that to the general population. So we've got more people from New South Wales and um, Victoria, for example, from than from Tasmania and Northern Territory. Uh, we wanted information on early feeding, so breastfeeding history and use of breast milk substitutes, 
timing of solid foods, including um, intake of common allergen causing foods. And then we wanted to be able to get enough data to give us um, intake around the foods, the actual food groups the children were eating and how much they were eating so that we could then drill down and look at the nutrient intakes and compare that with the recommendations. And these were phone surveys? Is that how you...? Um... Yes, yeah, so we, we um, recruited people online. Right. Uh, when we enrolled them, we did an early feeding questionnaire and a family history questionnaire, and then everybody that was having anything other than breast milk got sent a 24-hour food record form. Right. And that was um, messaged back to us um, by, you know, text messaging, and then we did a an assisted um, diet recall using the food um, diary as a basis. Right. So there's obviously so much you could tell us about this, but... What were your kind of your your top findings? Would you consider from from the trial? Oh gosh, where do I start? <laughs> um, all right. So I think our top findings were that we have really good breastfeeding rates in Australia. Um, we found that um, you know about ninety seven percent of the children started breastfeeding. Forty four percent were still getting some breast milk at. Um, 12 months of age, and then by two, about 10% were still having some breast milk. So there was a drop-off in breastfeeding mm. from around 18 months. Our exclusive breastfeeding figures to around six months weren't as high as um, the aims, and that's because of our feeding guidelines, which really say start solid foods at around six months. So you don't find them, there are many that are exclusively breastfed until... Yeah. Six months because of that but we did find a lot of kids had some infant formula in hospital and oh. that also dropped the exclusive breastfeeding rates mm. and I think the thing that I found interesting was a, a lot of those so a third of those actually um, stopped the infant formula when they got home and went back to full breastfeeding that's good yeah so I think people mm. really have a desire to breastfeed and if they can once they get established they breastfeed they for a good period of time which is awesome mm. Mm. and there were some findings about um iron intakes which were probably insufficient compared with what the nrvs are can you tell us a bit about what you found about iron intakes yeah the iron intakes um were really interesting so so we found that um but 90%, so quite a lot of the 6 to 12-month-olds weren't meeting the um, estimated requirement for iron um, and 25%, so a quarter of the um, toddlers. So the iron intakes were way lower than we um, than recommended. Um, and... And the other nutrient of concern was um, was sodium. So the kids were getting a lot more sodium than than recommended. And so with with regard to that iron intake, um, do you have any sort of feelings or hypothesis? I mean, I know that the survey wasn't set up to to get more detail about this, but is our estimated requirement high, or is it the sorts of foods that um, our infants are being introduced to aren't iron fortified or providing them with enough iron. Why do you think there is such a gap? 
Yeah, there's a huge um, gap in our knowledge. Um, the um, EIR for um, iron is um, is quite high for the six to twelve months olds, and then it drops. Um, and I think um, you know the the six to twelve months old really vary with the amount of food that they can actually manage. So so actually you know weren't getting enough of the iron fortified cereals, and also probably weren't getting enough of the um, the iron other iron rich foods such as meat, for example. Um, the toddlers, you know, their intakes were were lower and that's probably because it was being displaced by, you know, energy from other foods, so such as um, in the, the snack foods that they were eating and the, and the dairy foods that they were consuming. So they weren't getting quite enough of the um, meat and dairy, uh, meat foods that they needed to give them the iron. So this is really, it's it's telling us that, compared with what we set as the requirement, the intake is not meeting it, but it doesn't tell us anything at this point about the actual iron status, does it, or whether this has a health effect? Yeah, exactly. And that's how, you know, really if we were going to pick a priority for the next study, you would run a study where you were looking at children's iron status lined up with their iron intake. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so you've seen um, that iron intakes uh, compared with requirements are low and there's, there's a gap there, but uh, on the positive side, good breastfeeding commencement rates and the fact that even if introduced to formula in hospital, uh, there's a tendency to try and switch back to exclusive breastfeeding. Was there anything else in the results that kind of really took you by surprise when you were looking at the analysis? I think um, the big thing I found that was of surprise was the amount of discretionary foods, so all the snacks. So um, our um, dietary modelling in Australia doesn't include any allowance for the snack foods um, for toddlers. But and when you're talking snack foods, you're talking like biscuits or what What sort of discretionary yeah, things yeah, fall into biscuits, that? Biscuits, cakes, lollies, you right. know ice cream those sorts of sorts of things so there's no um for those very high fat high sugar sorts of foods and a lot of the the ones that are you know included in that snack sort of category there's no allowance in the in the food modeling that was that was used um as the mm. basis of the you know the eat for health uh, foundation diets so so we found that um you know, most of the toddlers, so nine out of ten, were having discretionary foods on the day that they were surveyed, and um, you know, on average, they were having um, you know a one serve, and uh, which was giving them around ten percent of their um, total energy intake, but the highest quartile were getting up to twenty five percent of their um, total energy intake, which is a huge amount. You know, if if you're thinking that you know an average toddler may only need a thousand calories a day, so they were getting between a hundred and um, two hundred fifty calories from yeah. their from their snack intakes. And if we think back to the point you were just making before about iron intake and food choices, if twenty five percent of your calories is coming from discretionary foods, the chances are they're not great sources of iron. No, usually they're not. You know, there are a few iron fortified snacks around, but 
you know, there you've really got to go looking for those. Yeah, yeah. So, so given that these just, and we've taken, uh, understand very top level key findings uh, from from the study. What do you think are really the most important practical tips that the dietitians who might be listening or nurses or other healthcare professionals should be aware of when they're when they're talking to mums of children in this age group? Um, look, you know, this group can be really, really hard <laughs> uh, to feed. And uh, so um, if we're thinking about the babies, you know, so 6 to 12 months of age, mm-hmm. I think... Um, talking to parents about how they can include iron-rich foods in their baby's diet. And, um, you know, often um, parents have no idea about how to actually, you know, get a piece of meat and get it into a texture that that a baby can manage. So I spend quite a lot of time talking about, you know, how do you get mince to a texture where you can mix it into vegetables, for example, or how to make a slow-cooked piece of meat that's really tender that you can puree and freeze in small batches to add mm. to, to give them a little bit more or using fortified, you know, cereals or fortified breads to help bring their iron levels up. So that's really, you know, at a one-to-one sort of level, although, you know, our study is really looking at the population. Mm. But, you know, iron iron for babies is, is often really tricky. And then with toddlers, it's um, about getting the balance isn't it? So, you know, if we think that toddlers who really like to snack, um, you know, it's sometimes giving good information around mealtime routine. So breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, Mm -hmm. dinner, you know, spacing things out and then providing information about healthy snacks and using, you know, foods from the five food groups in, in your snack patterns and often you know, if you talk that through, um, you know, people, will, it helps them prepare um, the groundwork. And, you know, the term we use for toddlers is everyday and sometimes foods. So your discretionary foods really fit into that sometimes food. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because obviously as adults, your snack foods probably where the discretionary foods creep in. Mm. But um, parents need to understand that those snack foods in a toddler who's only who's grazing all day, they're part of their baseline diet. They're not just Absolutely. the top-up foods. Absolutely. And, look, I think any dietitian that's seen, you know, toddlers in practice, sometimes the parents come in and they say, look, they, they don't eat a thing. And you go through their diet history and they may not be eating much at any one time, but when you add it all up and when you write it down, it's actually quite a lot of food. And the process of, you know, taking your diet history and actually working through that with the parents, often they'll say, oh, they're eating more than I thought. Uh, The other thing for both of the groups is balancing their milk intake with their food intake. And, um, you know, any infant that's learning to eat and toddler that's, you know, should be eating well, um, you know, parents sometimes don't think about milk or formula or breast milk being a part of um, the food that they're, they're having and contributing to their overall energy intake. And so learning to balance your your food with your drinks is really important at this stage as well. And do you think um, the the information that you've taken from the results of this trial 
Do you think there's any scope for those being included? Because the NHMRC infant feeding guidelines are being in the process of being updated, I understand. Um, do you think there's any lessons to be learnt uh, from your results that can be should be incorporated or considered when we're revising those? Oh, absolutely, um, because I think, you know, this is the only study that we've got that's nationwide at the moment, and we would love for there to be a larger more nationally representative study. Um, and um, you know, we've proven from our methodology that this can be done you know, with a relatively small amount of funding. So, you know, so definitely, you know, there's learnings from this study that can be included in, in the next iteration of the infant feeding guidelines. And just out of interest, what was the sample size? How many did you manage we, to include? We, we've got 1140 children okay. yeah which is an excellent starting point isn't it yeah we were aiming for 250 from each six month age group so we achieved that with a little bit extra right and it you know it was amazing thinking that you know we started recruiting for this study the 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 day of the national lockdown in 2020 <laughs> so you know it was pretty phenomenal and we included we managed to get the whole sample um collected within 12 months so um so it's actually a really tight snapshot of, yeah. of the feeding habits as well so do you think maybe lockdown helped you people were at home and <laughs> well, had time to answer the questions i i think so yeah, I, I think so. And um, a lot of people were using social media. So it it was, um, you know, a certain snapshot of a period yeah. of time. Um, yeah. And just out of interest, when in terms of methodology, when you're doing these sorts of dietary intake surveys on this age group of children, um, is it tricky because, as you mentioned before, their day-to-day intake varies so much, you know, the parents will say they don't need anything one day and the next day they mm. everything in sight. Like is it is it hard to sort of um, get those average intakes from this age group? So we um, that is built into the methodology that you use. So we did um, a series of repeats. Um, right. So thirty so percent of our sample um, collected two. Um, diet records and uh, that was randomised and uh, we also randomised people to the day of their food record so that, you know, we didn't all have, you know, Sunday or Saturday yeah. snacks or whatever. Um, but, you know, the, the repeats allow you then to, you know, estimate your um, the nutritional intake to yeah. a that's a, a lot more accurate. Yeah, and get a feel for the variation. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So um from from the study, what do you see? Um obviously opens up a many, many more research questions, but what do you consider to be sort of the the priorities in the next research steps based on your findings here? Okay. So look, I think um you know definitely we need more more and better information about iron. Um, and, you know, I think, um, you know, A, you know, do the low iron intakes that we we estimated, do they translate to um, low iron stores in, in children? We don't know. Yeah. Um, that uh, we could make an assumption that it, it could be, but we don't have that. So we need an iron study. And, um, 
you know, one of the things that would be really great would be to do a study um, looking also using a methodology that makes it easy to estimate the iron um, your, or your hemoglobin levels because um, people don't like, you know, having their children having blood tests. Mm -hmm. So if we can do a non-invasive methodology, that would be even better. Mm. Um, we, I would be really interested in following up some growth data. And, you know, we don't, um, we had, we collected uh, weights and lengths for, you know, the infants and toddlers in the studies, but, um, and we had standard procedures on how to do that. But, um, you know, look, this was lockdown. People weren't getting out. They were doing it at home. Mm. So, you know, it would be really interesting to get, you know, to repeat this again, get people, you know, measure them um, heights and lengths um, and then follow that up. So looking at the, you know, the determinants of their, their yeah. patterns. Yeah. Because, you know, the way we're feeding infants and toddlers has changed, I believe, and, um, you know, a lot more of the pouch foods and a lot more of those snack foods and, uh, you know, there's a lot of high-energy drinks and things that get used. So, you know, that I think would be really interesting to track um, as far as influences on growth. Yeah, the actual impacts that has. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, so, you know, there's lots of work and lots of questions that could be could be followed up. And actually just on that, that um, point of the way that we introduce solids has changed, um, just going back to the, the allergy question, did you, the um, recommendations about introducing allergens or allergenic foods has changed um, over the past few years? Do, yeah. It's what are parents allergy. doing? Yeah. So the allergen... Um, stuff is really interesting and that's something that I worked in as a as a postdoc I didn't talk about that earlier on but um you know the infant feeding guidelines uh, from 2013 um you know, talk about not avoiding allergens um to prevent food allergy which is correct but um the Evidence has moved on since then, and most countries around the world now for allergy prevention recommend deliberate introduction mm. um, and regular inclusion of the common allergy-causing foods. And uh, so ASCIA um, infant feeding guidelines um, would, uh, that's what they state. We looked in OSFITS at the introduction of allergens um, under 12 months of age and we found that you know most children were eating egg and peanut um, we found really interesting information around sesame so 87 percent of the one-year-olds you know had been eating sesame as well so so you know i think in australia we've got the message about including the allergy causing foods and part of that's from you know the the federal government um, nip allergies in the bub um, promotion so the message just got out there what we don't know is how often people are eating it eating the allergens so you know so it actually is um if you include an allergen in the diet but don't follow up and eat it regularly for children at risk that's actually can um you know be set you up for de developing yeah, an allergy your immune system likes to see the food regularly yeah. so we don't know that and yeah. that, that would be interesting to, to follow up 
from a bigger cohort. I've got some data showing that that probably is the case, that children aren't eating it regularly. Yeah. would be yeah. interesting. Well, I guess it's at the least it's reassuring to know that we can translate evidence into practice um, yeah, in some sure. situations. So, Meredith, is there any, like, final key points you'd like to make about the, um, the trial before we wrap up? Um, I think, um, you know, have a read of the papers. They're all freely available. Um, we've made them all open access. It's, it's really interesting. This, and it's one of these things where the more you look, the more you think think about. Um, I think um, the information around um, discretionary foods is is really probably the you know one of the most important things. Um, you know, how do we support parents to do to to feed their kids well, um, how do we get good, good levels of iron in their diets? How do we teach them to balance their milk intake with food intake? Um, I think they're probably the main the main groups. Um, and then the last thing I was going to say is that you know we did this as a team. Um, so just a acknowledgement of the other researchers. So Najma Mooman, who you know this work was her PhD. Uh, Professor Tim Green. Professor McCready's, um, Rebecca Golly, Professor Golly, and uh, Dr. Chelsea Morch, um, and our statisticians at that summary. Um, you know, so this was a big team, big team yeah. effort. I imagine so. Um, even just for data analysis, I can't even imagine how much data there was to trawl through for your. Oh, but... huge amounts, and also, also our consumers. You know, the people who participated in the study. Yeah. You know, we had just an awesome bunch of people who really were happy to share their, you know, a snapshot into how they were feeding their children. And without people participating in these sorts of studies, you know, we don't. Impossible um, to run. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that that we were just really grateful for that. Well, look, thanks very much for your time today, Mary. And I think it's always really helpful to hear um the investigator actually interpreting the results of the paper on top of just simply reading the results. But we'll link to um, the Ausfits publications in the show notes. Um, and if anyone who's listening um, today would like to hear more about the trial from Merrin, then you can have a look at the two-part webinar series that Merrin presented for Dietitian Connection. We'll also add that link to the show notes. So thanks also to Nestle Nutrition Institute for supporting our podcast today. And um, thanks for your time, Merrin. Thanks, Jane. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.